everybody. Welcome to another mutiny. I am joined here today with uh, my co-hosts, Rachel and Jason. My name is Jackson, and today we are going to be discussing preparation for games and for GMing in general. The kind of thought process that goes into planning for a session-by-session basis, the thought process that goes into planning for entire campaigns or one-shots, as well as any tips or tricks that we may provide to assist other GMs in making sure that they are not caught off guard by their party, as uh, a lot of players love to Mm. do that to their GMs, absolutely. That's some optimistic thinking there, not being caught off guard. Oh, I've had to improvise (laughs) a dungeon before, and we'll definitely be talking a lot more about about ways to think about things to prepare for when something unexpected does happen, as well as also just keeping an open mind and being open to improvisation when things that nobody at the table that sat down that night could have possibly expected to happen. So I think right now for beginning this discussion here, let's go ahead and talk about just the general checklist of things that are good to look at from session to session. Things that should be put down on lock before before everybody starts rolling dice and the story resumes. So for me personally, what this looks like for me is I take about an hour before session starts and I think about the party and double check and make sure that the party's are all aligned with their goals. So does everybody know like what the current mission objective is or the current side objectives that they're going that they're trying to get taken care of on the way to this main objective? Are there character motivations that are leading these individual players to this location where events are happening? Questions like that are things that I ask myself as I prepare, and if any of those answers are no, then my challenge to myself is trying to think of a way to gently remind the players in-game of what their final goal is, as opposed to just telling them before the game starts. I also double-check my encounters, making sure that I did my math correct with encounter balancing and XP. Um, Also make sure that every encounter that I do has some formation of treasure or loot that will get rewarded to them after they complete this challenge. And then I also have a moment where I sit and think, well, what if they turn around and do something completely different or what if they instead of talking to this npc they try and attack this npc so then i in that case i have a loose plot skeleton for in my mind for what's going to happen if this situation were to happen so if they talk to the npc then uh they could potentially gain an ally that would assist them through the dungeon which is what i would expect the party to do in that instance But I also have it in my back of my head where if this NPC is attacked and the party kills someone that wasn't expecting to kill, then I know how the rest of that dungeon will play out because I will have that consideration that that person won't be there or that NPC won't be with the party for the future encounters of the dungeon. 
That's really the so biggest, you're talking most very common... much. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. Yo, I was gonna say you're talking very much from the perspective of because you homebrew, so you are having to think about the bigger picture even right before a small session. Yes. Right. All the dungeons and all the encounters that I run in my games are written by myself, so I won't have me personally. I don't have the. Like, the, you walk into a cave and there are four goblins here because that's the way the adventure is written. I have to kind of think ahead mm. a little bit and try and motivate the party to move in that direction in an organic way, which is very difficult to do. And it's also difficult for that to be written organically with Adventure Pass as well, as that's uh, one of the key challenges for writing an Adventure Path is not railroading a character to go to a certain dungeon, but to provide that intrinsic motivation to get the players to go to that dungeon, go to that objective, and do what they need to do. Sure. Yeah, I would say for myself, even though currently I'm just running one campaign, trying to think if that's true. Yes, that's true. And it's a pre-written adventure so I do a lot more of my character motivation stuff I did at the beginning of like when we started the campaign or when a new character comes in. I think about what in their backstory can I tie into the adventure? You know, which NPCs can I change a little bit? Which piece of evidence can I tweak so that they tie into the character background? Is more of a like every once in a while kind of thought process whereas for you with your homebrews it sounds like that's your every session thought process is that fair to say you that's what you're saying you do that every every session think about their motivations more or less or mainly it's just to remind myself as well because I'm mm. a forgetful person. I've got a lot going on, and I play in three games a week right now. So, uh, two of which I run. So, it helps for me to just kind of refresh my memory on what everybody's wanting to do. But um, for the sure. biggest example, like with with the Thursday night game I'm playing, the most recent preparation that I had to do for that game was trying to figure out what interactions would happen between a player in the party whose character is the crown prince of the empire and the interaction that they are going to have with their father being the emperor knowing that this character's motivation is to overthrow the emperor and take his place so going into that interaction knowing or going into that session knowing that an interaction between the crown prince and the emperor is going to happen helped guide my thought process for getting like those two separated and away from the party or what should the party be doing while these two are having their conversation a lot more immediate planning because whenever I write a campaign, I don't write very specific details because those will change. A lot of my campaigns end up being completely different than where I thought they were going even four sessions before. 
So sure. I tend to just have like bullet points where it's like, okay, they're going to go to this city, they're going to talk to his dad, and they're going to discover this thing. And then once I we actually get to the session where those things are going to come into play, then that's when I start to take a step back and look into the finer details of how I want to plan these interactions and these challenges that the party will face that specific session. And sometimes that preparation mm. bleeds over into multiple sessions as well. So I tend to do a lot of prep all at once and then just kind of go until I start running out of prep. <laughs> Right, right, right. Yeah, I guess in that sense, it's somewhat similar in a pre-written campaign in that I will look, you know, I've read the entire thing, I've kind of plotted it out, known what hooks tie in where, but then before a specific session, I'll plan out, you know, we play for four hours, so I know we're going to do two or three encounters, so to speak, two or three rooms, so I kind of plot out which directions they might go so that I make sure to get a refresh on everything that they could run into. You know, look up monster abilities. Look up, you know, what NPCs are there, what traps are there, what treasure are there, so that, you know, in theory, unless they jump down the garbage chute and skip half the dungeon like Jason did fairly recently to me. That wasn't me. <laughs> oh, that that's right. Me. That was the session you missed. <laughs> I, I, was, I wasn't there for that one. I don't know what you're talking about. Note to self, don't put a back door in the dungeon. (laughs) Yeah, no garbage chutes. No walls that people can scale when they're supposed to go through the stupid tower. Um, Yeah, I think you've mentioned doing similar things, right, Jason, where you've read the whole thing, and then the night before, the week before, you kind of reread the parts that they're likely to run into. So, allow me to... Well, first of all, hey everybody. <laughs> that's your that's your friendly GM Jason. How's it going? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm a little sleepy. It's been a heck of a couple weeks. Yeah. <clears throat> so allow me to uh, offer two perspectives. So very much the way Jackson was talking about homebrew back when I used to homebrew. This was before grad school working a salary job when I had time to homebrew. So, I went to grad school, then I got married, and then um, and that, from that point on, there was like no time to work on homebrews anymore. Mm-hmm. Because then kids and Yeah, and darn kids. Everything. But prior to graduate school, I used to do nothing but homebrew. And uh, very much in the same way Jackson operated, I was also, I would get inspirations for adventures and campaigns. A lot of the time, strangely, through music. Heavy metal albums. Hmm. Like big concept albums were often big, um, big sources of inspiration for me. A heavy metal band called Iced Earth. I ran two of their concept albums I, I did whole campaigns based off of nice but yeah so like I I had the skeleton of a, a campaign where I knew where the it was going to start and I knew where the story was going to end and I had a couple of main uh, milestones that I wanted to hit on the way from point A to point B but how the party got from 
point A to mile, mile marker one. That was up to them. And very much the way, same way Jackson operated, it, w- it would be my session preps would be looking back at my notes. What happened the, during the last adventure? Who did they talk to? And how can I build on what happened from the last adventure that would, I don't want to say railroad, but help funnel them towards that mile marker? Sure. You know, kind of gently push them in that direction without mm-hmm. actually putting them on a rail cart and rail, literally railroading them down towards mile, that mile marker. <clears throat> But yeah, so that so that's kind of the way I would I would usually prep my at least um long term prep my homebrew sessions, and then you know okay they're gonna have these encounters, they're these levels. I would find a monster that fits that level, and then that I thought was really cool, and I'd be like okay, so how can I take this level appropriate monster that's really freaking cool and I want to build an encounter around them and how can I fit that in the story progression and then that's how I would really kind of build my homebrews interesting yeah so it was much more like I knew how they, like, so I had a a, a very loose idea of how they were going to get from point A to point B. And I know that they were going to have these one or two encounters. And then I would find a really cool monster that was level appropriate, build build the encounter around that monster, making Mm -hmm. that encounter really, like, dynamic and cinematic and cool. And then... And like, and then flesh out the story based on that encounter. Sure. Yeah. Of course. Of course, my party was much more combat based and less role play based. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it, it, it depends on your party. But my party, they loved combat more than they loved role play. Right. Oh, so of course, the highlight was always the encounters. Yeah. And and less so on the story and the role playing. So, yeah. Now, that being said, when I session prep my APs, the adventure paths and the modules that I run, that's much more different. Mm-hmm. I kind of know what's coming up in the story. And from there, like when I, when I, get, when I sit down with an AP, I read like cover to cover the entire AP. And then when I, okay, when we're about to start book one, I will reread book one. And then when we're about to start session one, I will reread chapter one. And then the night before, I will read like the first handful of pages. Mm-hmm. And again, so when I read the, when, uh, the first blush, the first couple times I read the book, I just skip the encounters. I don't even read the encounters. I don't read the monster plot, stat blocks. Right. I just read the story. I just want to get. I just want to get the narrative. Like what's happening, big picture wise. Okay, and then, even when I reread the, the first book, same thing. I'll skip the encounters. I'll skip the stat blocks. It's not until I know that we're going to sit down for a session 
and that's when I actually pull up the stat blocks because I think it's pointless to read the stat blocks so far so early on you're never going to remember that <laughs> you know yeah I'll glance at tags but I agree reading specific abilities more than just oh undead here demons over here I'm right. running abomination bolts so that's what I'm running into but yeah 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 you can get the you can get the gist of it being like okay mm -hmm. Big yeah, thing here, of, small group of littles here, yeah. Yeah, for example, like when we were prepping for, um, when I was prepping for uh, Indigo Isles, it's like, okay, I know that you guys are going to get to the amphitheater. Okay, they're going to have wave after wave after wave of monsters. There's going to be four waves of monsters. Cool. Got mm -hmm. it. Four waves of monsters. Sweet. Okay, they're going to get to the caves. There's going to be um, earth elementals. Cool. Got it. I don't need to read the stat blocks and the abilities. I know there's going to be earth elementals. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. my. Uh, I find it interesting. What, oh, go ahead, Jackson. Uh, I was going to say, the uh, uh, definitely the games that I run and that I play in are much more uh, roleplay focused and much more not necessarily combat oriented because... The players that I play with, they do tend to enjoy the cool story and trying to weave that intricate like legend of their character as they go through and play. So a lot of my preparation for those types of encounters is mainly just, am I following the rule of cool? Is this battle that they're about to go fight, is this going to end up being a really cool encounter are they going to feel like they succeeded in that encounter in a really cool way or is this encounter just serving as a means to the end like they're going through a dungeon they're five floors away from the boss fight therefore an encounter must be here um a lot of my my campaign planning and session planning definitely has to do with justifications for those encounters because my uh, audience, my players enjoy that type of stuff. I run extremely political games. So like, like the, the last thing, the last session I ran with the Thursday game I mentioned before, we had a character death and there wasn't any combat because it was a narrative character <gasps> death. <laughs> now, did they die of poison? They died because their father, the Emperor, stabbed them through the back with a spear while siphoning godly power. It, it, it's okay. There will be some resolution to that. He is, quote unquote, dead at the moment. But, uh... I see. But that moment, I know... Ra Rachel's just worried... <laughs> Rachel's just worried because on Friday her character got poisoned. <laughs> very poisoned. I'm very. It's on the top of my mind. <laughs> Diseases, poisons, they suck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. No poisons. I've tried poisoning in them, and every single time I have them roll a fort save, they always pass. It's. Uh, I'll get them some point. <laughs> <laughs> just change the dc yeah it's oh fine. yeah there you They'll go never know <laughs> but that that entire sequence of events leading up to that character's death i know is sticking with my players and will stick with those players for a significant amount of time so even though there wasn't necessarily an encounter that i prepped it still is good to 
try and in your daily preparation for your game to think about is the challenge that I am presenting my players going to be memorable to them? And I think that's a very important consideration to have. Yeah, I think, and I think to, to your point too, even if you're running, even if you're running a more combat focused game, that that point is still relevant. Absolutely. You want to make the combat, um, you want to make the combat memorable. I always enjoy making the combat a puzzle for the party to figure out. Mm-hmm. Like which tactics to use. and Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So the combat, in my opinion, should be a puzzle. Mm-hmm. It should it shouldn't just be I mean yeah of course you could have a horde of goblins and a horde of you know giant spiders that right. for them to just you know blender right through but if you want to make like a big bad boss fight that should be a puzzle mm-hmm. it, it should be something memorable and it should be something that the party can tactically try to figure out and have that eureka moment where okay mm-hmm. we figured it out now let's take it down mm-hmm. well and i think you touched on something important there too is that not every combat should be that boss like you should have those massive horde grindy combats or political stuff sorry i'm more of a combat person mm-hmm. uh you know like there needs to be a variance in whatever you're doing. You need to make sure that different characters have points to shine, and you need to make sure that it doesn't just always feel like an escalating, you know, roller coaster of threat level. Like, there needs to be downtime, there needs to be easy fights, there needs to be almost death fights, so that the players don't just get in the routine of everything is the same. Because no matter how exciting it is, if it's always the same level of excitement it will become boring i would think oh yeah yeah you need to you need to have the pcs feel like heroes Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you need to have them feel like badasses every now and then because that is the hero fantasy we (laughs) we're playing pathfinder we're playing a group of big badass heroes and the purpose of pathfinder is you are the heroes of this world you know, I, I know in, in, I'm not going to poo-poo 5th edition, but in 5th edition, you do have NPCs like Drizzt walking around. Drizzt is out there. You know, it takes place in in the Forgotten Realms, so Drizzt is literally out there mm. in the world. He's an NPC, but he's also like level 20. Sure. But in Pathfinder 2nd edition, you are literally the heroes. Like, you are the Drizzt. And so you need to have these moments where you do need to, you are, you are going to shine and you need to feel like big, badass heroes. So of course, you know, having those grindy, uh, near death fights are awesome, but not everything needs to be a grindy near death fight. You can have the trivial encounters where even the, you know, the cleric who, has no points in strength and no points in constitution can still bonk 
uh, a goblin on the head with a, with a quarter staff and get the last kill and get the mm-hmm. last hit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a cool moment in first ed D and D where you know you start low level, you fight kobolds, and it's difficult. Like you almost die. And remember, in first ed, you have very few hit points. You don't get big modifiers like you do nowadays. And then, you know, a few levels later, which is years in this system of real time, you fight the same things and you can take on hordes of, you know, 20, 30, 40, and just, you know, lead whack them. And it's like the comparison between the two makes you get your big hero moment of realizing this thing that used to almost kill me is now super easy because I'm awesome now. Um, It's just another... You want the contrast. You want it to tie into things you've done before and progress. Oh, yeah. That's a strategy, uh, writing strategy that a lot of media uses as well. Like, um, mm-hmm. having tr- like having a really difficult boss fight and then the span of time to the next boss fight is just a bunch of trash mobs. Just to give that feeling of progression. Elden Ring, for example, loves to do that, where they will introduce your first encounter with an enemy as a boss fight, and then later in the game, they are just a standard enemy. Mm. And then, like, in terms of, like, narrative progression with building up to tension and easing the tension in order to build up to tension again... Not every single encounter, not every single fight or decision has world-ending consequences that go through with them. Yeah. And, for example, when you look at a show like Avatar The Last Airbender, the episode Mm -hmm. right before the intense finale is a, a joke episode, a recap episode filled with jokes, filled with laughs, and nobody really Mm -hmm. taking it seriously until the last moment of the show when everybody is reminded oh yeah bad guys (laughs) and (laughs) and that's honestly a very a very good strategy to take just in terms of easing into more stressful more difficult situations is start off with a beach episode and see where that goes. Or if you finish a rather intense, difficult arc, make the next arc a beach episode. Something a little bit more lighthearted, so that way once those heavy-hitting things do come back, they hit that much heavier. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was... Sorry. I'm gonna reference back to something Jason said, unless I'm cutting someone's thoughts off. You're good. No, no, I was just... I was just thinking that this reminded me of the Goku learning or Goku getting a driver's license episode. Oh my god, yes! <laughs> <laughs> Anime filler is so good at that. <laughs> it's like, okay, great. When are we going to get back to Cell? Mm-hmm. I was going to say, there's ways to do it that are good and I don't know that episode, so I'm not it's but it's there's garbage. ways to do it. It's such a garbage okay. episode. It's just in the middle of like, oh, there's this horrible monster that is eating people and gaining immense power. Let's go drive cars. Mm. Oh. Ooh. Yeah. I need to get my driver's license. Yeah, and you don't want to do that to your players either. Like if they're into something, doesn't matter if you're doing a pre 
written module or your own homebrew, if they're into something, go with what they're into. Don't say, oh, no, we have to do this now because module says so or because I planned this. Like, just gauge their interest and roll with it. I mean, like sell in during the the parade. Yeah, yeah. I'm not doing this. Goodbye. <laughs> uh, and it was okay. Yeah, yeah. You got to eat your stale, your your rotten pickles. I didn't eat the food, but yeah, oh, that's I got right, to you didn't. <laughs> eat food that I didn't see prepared or brought to me. That doesn't sound like so so paranoid. So I was I, Jason. You mentioned that when you did homebrew, you would find cool monsters and then kind of build stories around it, and it reminded me of a habit that I picked up from my dad, who picked it up from his GM in his early D&D years, which is, you know, he would make tables, uh, random monster tables for his world, you know. Uh, it was usually a D100, so things you wanted more common or... Uh, that would be evenly distributed. But yes, a table of monsters weighted usually so that things do or don't happen more often. And then you'd maybe make your world, make your dungeon, and then you just roll. And what shows up, shows up. And then the really fun part about world creation would be figuring out why these things were here. So we didn't necessarily pick a specific monster, but you'd pick monsters that fit your... Like, I wrote a desert world, so I went through multiple monster manuals, finding desert creatures, put them in my table, rolled randomly, and then you get to create a story for why would there be, you know, ants here, and but there's a demon right next to them. How would this happen? How would they cohabitate? So just a different way of world creation and prep work, I guess. Yeah, I definitely like that approach for, for uh, wilderness encounters. Like if they're traveling through mm. a landscape and like they get attacked by a pack of wolves, well, they're they got attacked by a pack of wolves because they're in the wolves' territory. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, so the guy I'm talking about, Mike, he he just recently made an entire dungeon this way. So I think in one room was like a lich, and the next room were skeletons, or not skeletons, goblins, or something that doesn't go with a lich. And so he slightly modified the dungeon for like, oh, well, there's a secret wall here that the goblins don't know about, or the lich is trapped behind so you i mean you can use it for non-wilderness too like that's the campaign now is these things randomly are here my job is now to tell a story for the players to discover why these weird things all are coexisting i have not used that method for a while so i'm a little rambly but that is no i've, I've heard of that and that's a really cool mm -hmm. method too it's a really it keeps you on your toes. Yeah. And it's, I think it's, it's something that like, as long as everybody is aware that, the, that it's happening and you're, everybody's cool with it because there definitely could be that player that they'd be like, this doesn't make any fucking sense and I right. don't like it. And this is, this is bullshit. Why would a lich be in mm -hmm. the room right next to goblins. This sucks. Suspend your disbelief, man. It's a game. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
but, but you know, uh, but I'm saying like there definitely could be that. There are those oh, players. Yeah. No, I hundred yeah. percent. Uh, but <laughs> but it, again, this is the, it, this comes down to like, hey, this is the type of game we're playing. This is the session zero. Mm-hmm. As long as we're all cool with it, thumbs up. Let's just roll with it and have fun. You yeah. know, and, and we can have fun oh, with yeah. it. And I'll, and I'll be mm-hmm. open and honest too with my players. Like if if there's something that I like for the for the campaign where the crown prince just got killed, we'll just call that the Sun Empire campaign because that's what I refer to it as. For that mm-hmm. campaign, when I started writing it and when I got this character's backstory. I had no idea that that was where the things were going to go. But as we got closer and closer to them coming back to the main city where the Emperor was, it just popped in my head completely out of nowhere. I thought that it would be a really cool thing to do because I uh, I was inspired by RuneScape because I'm a nerd. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and then... Uh, from there, things in the world to allow that event that I thought would be really cool and really fun to happen did change slightly. And whenever things like that happen, I'm always very open and very upfront with my players about like, hey, slight difference in lore here, or I just want to go ahead and make a quick change to the lore here just so everyone's on the same page uh, for why this possible action is justified within the universe but at the same time like my players aren't really coming after me for those inconsistencies and since i am open with those inconsistencies and why things are changing that tends to help out a lot with player enjoyment of the game just because they know that the work that you are doing as GM is for their benefit for the story and for how they enjoy the story. Whenever I write things, I personally take the approach that it is the players telling the story and I am just here to facilitate what they want to do by providing challenges and Mm -hmm. obstacles in their way towards the goal that they want to get to. The fact that my idea for the campaign and the players' goals align just means that I'm really good at predicting them. But it doesn't mean that I've influenced (laughs) them in that way necessarily. Sure. So yeah, I, yeah, I take a bit of a different perspective. I think I take it more as a collaborative, because I think it's, I think it's important for the GM to have just as much fun mm-hmm. as the players, and and the GM is just as important. I'm not going to say more important because that's false, but it, the GM is just as important as the players. So I think that if I if I'm not having fun, and you know, part of it, part of my enjoyment is also taking part in telling the story and the way I take part in telling the story is by influencing the story through NPC interactions and encounters and challenges Mm -hmm. I think the what was I going to say the one thing I really do enjoy that you brought up uh, Jackson is the idea of one second sneezes <laughs> no it was a cough okay. <laughs> <laughs> no it um 
I think that regardless if you're playing an a pre-written adventure, a module, a campaign, or a homebrew, there has to be a certain level of buy-in from mm-hmm. the from all parties involved. If you're if you're a PC or a GM, everybody at the table has to have a bit of a buy-in, and that's where session zero comes in, where you can be like, okay, this is the story that we are going to collaborate collaboratively tell together we are telling a political intrigue story inspired by RuneScape or we are telling a um, a a theological prophecy story inspired by Iced Earth this heavy metal album and you know it's going to be this epic theological prophetic second coming of the antichrist type situation and you as PCs are are there to stop the the oncoming apocalypse, and you need to you need to work your way through these prophecies and travel through these dif- to these different realms, you know, to to work your way through the, through these various interpretations of the prophecy to find out which one's the right one. And then, t- and then identify that, and then take on the big bad. If you, if having a player, I think, and, and I don't, I don't want to put down a player because I think bringing up issues is important. Okay, so I'm, I'm having a hard time. I'm having a hard time verbalizing this. I think it's important for everybody at the table to be able to be comfortable to bring up issues. But I think when it when the, when it's con, when it's consistent, and it's always the 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 picking of net the nitpicking. That's when it be, I think it becomes a problem. When you are nit when somebody is nitpicking the story to death, and and it's always the, the tiny little inconsistencies like you mentioned. That's where the the idea of okay, well, you didn't buy into buy into it you, you know is it really that big of an issue and if it is then you know what maybe this maybe my table is not for you yeah. right but like I mean but I do think that players should always feel comfortable to be to go up to their GM and saying hey I'm having an issue buying into the story because of X or Y and then yeah you can work through that but when if it's a, if it's constant and consistent and it's always small things then that at that point you know what no harm no foul my table's not for you yeah Mm -hmm. like uh i think there's go ahead value in what jackson said in that and you do it too jason jackson just happened to be the one that said it that he's upfront about if something is changing or inconsistent or the rules are changing you'll just say it I know, I mean, you guys probably picked up on the fact that not as a GM, but as a player, I'm an obsessive note taker. So when I do play a political game and it's like, this doesn't line up with my notes, that's fine with me as long as the GM is willing to work with me and say, oh, that's my bad or, oh, I changed something or, oh, you know what? It's fine. It doesn't work out because you've got something wrong. 
but just be, you know, it's fine. Your character's supposed to have it wrong. That's all fine. It's only frustrating if the GM doesn't work through with you or isn't upfront. Like they change something and you're like, didn't you say that it was Bob that killed the prince? And he's like, no, it was not Bob. That's the problem. So as long as players and GMs are collaborative and like all willing to say, I've changed something or I don't understand something, you know, like you're saying, Jason, buy into it, work collaboratively, it'll work out. Um, I cut you off, Jackson. What were you going to say? To be fully honest, I kind of forgot. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, the the being open and being upfront with your players and just honest about that communication is so, so insanely important. One of the players that's playing in that that Sunset Empire campaign, the Sunrise, the Sun Empire campaign that I am running in, they shared with me a story one time about how they left a table because the note-taking software that everybody was using to keep track of all the notes was accessed and changed by the GM without anybody noting knowing and this guy only found out because he had access to the audit logs for the note-taking software so it's like if you are going to change things like nobody is expecting the level of writing from an amateur gm and a few players as (laughs) god of war ragnarok which is like a professionally done game with a team of very talented writers at its back. It's Mm -hmm. a game to play for fun and inconsistencies and mistakes in storytelling and writing are going to happen. It's just the very nature of things. It's whether or not the players and the GM are comfortable enough with each other to clearly communicate these issues and work towards a resolution is what really makes or breaks those types of situations. Right. And, and so I think I've mentioned this before and getting back to the topic of GM prep. <laughs> yeah, we kind of went off there. One of the, one of the, no, 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 no. And I, I, no, this is a good conversation. I think this is the kind of, this is kind of our theme. Mm-hmm. We meander when it comes to topics, and that's that's, that's kind fine. of our theme. It's what we're known for. <laughs> but the the idea of being able to have regular check-ins, I know that I do it for every single one of my games, and I run one on Mondays, one on Fridays, the podcast on Sundays, the other one on Friday now. Yeah, yeah, the other one on Friday, so... For a couple months, at least. Yeah, for the next couple of months. So I'm running one, two, three, four games. Five, if you include the beginner box, which I don't know when the next time we're going to be doing that one is. We'll figure it yeah. out, Jackson. We'll yeah, figure that one out. scheduling's been real tough. <laughs> but no, one of the things I am always open about is feedback. Like, always, um, they tell me feedback. Feedback is super important, whether it's about my style, whether it's about the story, whether it's about the rules, just, just feedback in general. Uh, I I want I live and die off of feedback. Positive, negative. There's no such thing. Feedback is feedback. Oh, yeah. So just hit me with hit me up with feedback. And when it comes to GM prepping, um, 
I, I take that feedback to heart. So if I if I know that this uh, that player X has given me feedback about this particular game, I'm going to do everything in my power to take that feedback to heart, whether it's story or it's my style or it's, you know, this particular rule or, or what have you. That feedback is super important to me and it's always basically the post-it note that's at the very top of my notebook when when we play those games like those that those feedback notes are always the post-its that are on the very front cover of that meta my metaphorical notebook for that game and so that's always the one of the first things i check in on is um is that feedback? Yeah, feedback's crazy important. How are you going to fix a problem if you don't know it exists, right? Yeah. I don't know why, but that mean I don't I don't run a, a lot of games, uh, especially for people who aren't related to me. So, feedback still happens, but it's it's very different when it's your sister and children and parents. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. Uh, it did remind me, though, one thing I like to do or try to do, which isn't necessarily prep, but I always like to leave my door open of if char- if players want to do character development off screen, I love that. I love when my players like, you know, this is what my character's thinking in this instance. You know, I'm not going to say it in character because I don't want the other players to know because, you know, I like character intrigue. I think others do. That's definitely a note in my prep work. Similar is that if someone tells me a new character motivation or a new character backstory point or thought process in private, then I, like Jason, did not exactly feedback, but I like to make sure to think about how I can incorporate that into the next session and what can I tweak or what opportunities can I set up for them to uh, take advantage of their new thoughts um, for their character. This, I think that's important is not just feedback on how I am as a GM, but them developing their characters and how they fit in the world. Mm. Ha! Tied it back into prep work. There you go. <laughs> now, here's, a, here's an interesting question, too. And I know it's one that Jackson and I talked about. Here, let's get down to the nuts and bolts of GM preparation. Okay. Map work. Yeah. I love... Let's talk about map work. Oh, I love maps. I love maps. And cartography. So back in the day... Back in the day... It was butcher paper. paper. Mm. It was butcher paper. Mm Mm-hmm. And then it became grid paper. Then it became dry erase grid mats. Mm-hmm. Battle mats. Yeah, battle mats. And now it's virtual tabletops. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, um, how do you guys? How do you guys? Uh, my that? least favorite medium, I'll just say right away, is the dry erase mats and the and the uh, the like the flip tiles. 
The only reason why I don't like working with them is because they are a specific size and will always be that size. So if you have a large dungeon planned, you cannot fit it all on one map without making weird things like each square being 10 feet instead of 5 feet. I don't mm. like making those types of conventions sure. with my own design. The digital age, though, with like Foundry and being able to make a map with Foundry, uh, it's been absolutely incredible. Especially because it's got all like the walls, the doors, windows, lighting effects, um, weather effects. I do very much enjoy that. However, it does come with the downside of... Uh, I find that the amount of time it takes for me to prepare a map for digital play is longer than it is for me to prepare a map for, like, a physical in-person play. Well, yeah, because you want it to look nicer. I mean, you play in person, and it's... I mean... We sometimes just use cutout pieces of, you know, construction paper. But you can have some disbelief. But if you're on a virtual map where you've got access to backgrounds that look like, you know, cool dungeons and trees and shit, like, you want to take the time to make it look nice. So I can see that, that it would take yeah. longer. Well, the, the method that I've been using uh, recently is uh, Jason introduced me to uh, Blue Tile, which is made by Jason Bullman, I think, right? Yeah, Jason Bullman's Blue Tiles. And uh, that's that's a tile-based map system, but if you want to make a map like that on a... on Foundry, for example, you need to first have an idea of what the map is going to look like. Like, I have a... I have a notebook made of graph paper that I take every day to work. And uh, since I work in a call center job and there's a bit of downtime between calls, sometimes I'll doodle a map or I'll doodle a couple ideas within that notebook and draw it out. Then I have to translate that into tiles on the computer, meaning that I also need to count out like how many squares by how many squares did I use on my notebook. Okay, that's going to be the size of my canvas. Now that I have my canvas size, which tiles can I use to try and get as close to my actual drawing as possible? Because sometimes what I draw just isn't possible with the current set of tiles that I have. Yeah. And then after you get all that, it's like, okay, now we got to add in furniture and obstacles and like ambient items that, or not ambient items, just extra items that could be picked up and used by the party. And then drawing walls and doors and windows. And when that all comes together, it makes a very great experience. Like uh, the RuneScape game that I run some of my friends through was the first game that I used the blue tiles with. And the map that I presented to them, along with some extras that I had just by thinking through the map as I was putting it on the computer ended up making a very cool experience where the alchemist poisoned the water supply of this bandit camp using arsenic and it was the best play that could have happened it killed four people (laughs) Mm -hmm. and heavily wounded a couple others (laughs) i knew there was poison somewhere but that 
that process from start to finish to make that map for that instance was probably about three hours, uh, not including the time it took for me to figure out how to use those tiles. <laughs> which is, right. which honestly is not that long compared to if you were going to build it using Dungeon Draft. Oh, I, I, I have a love-hate relationship with Dungeon Draft. Like, sometimes it's great, but God, when I have a finished map in Dungeon Draft that I try and import into Foundry, all hell breaks loose. <laughs> but yeah, so like, friend of the podcast, also the voice of Besmara, and my co-host on Dubious Knowledge, Corey, does all her maps in Dungeon Draft, but she spends hours in there but i mean her maps are amazing her, mm. her cartography is amazing but like like dozens of hours in dungeon draft just making them look pristine yeah where you know i can spend an hour and a half just with blue tiles and just quick whip together something when Corey's mentioned sorry that reminded me she's mentioned she has different soundtracks or genres based on which campaign she's prepping, right? Is that mm -hmm. her that said that once? Yep. Yeah. Like you did with your... Yeah. You guys yeah, are talking like... a foreign language. I've never done a map on a digital. I, oh, do... I can show you. I got graph paper, though. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you can draw it on graph paper and then you can use Jason Tile's blue maps, or oh, Jason Bowman's blue tiles to... Yeah transfer that to foundry i mean i love super super this easy convenience of foundry but if i have my choice i'm gonna play in person yeah, and if i'm gonna sure. play in person i'm gonna play with a physical map because i like battle map i use battle maps now i just draw out the section that they're likely to encounter and then piece them together we have a few but yeah, so... Do you, do you use starbursts for your enemies? And then no. you can eat the starburst afterwards? I don't. I love Although, that idea. apparently... Yeah. yeah. When you My kill the used, enemy, uh, then you can eat them. Yeah, he used a cup of jello once when we fought a gelatinous cube and let us oh, eat it Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> Using jellos for oozes mm -hmm. and you can eat them? Ooh, Jackson's holding up a fancy map. I am. Map. So, yeah, grid paper, grid paper map. This, uh, th there's no visual for the show, but I am holding up just one of the drafts that I have for a map, and it is very well detailed. Just because I had a lot of time to kill that day at work, but even mm -hmm. just the general like structure of plotting out the rooms, plotting out what's going to be in each room, the treasure that those monsters could possibly hold as well as the unifying theme of that dungeon. In this case, this is a dungeon themed around the just the general concept of war. And as a part of this dungeon, there is a minotaur that is constantly lapping it and seeking for intruders. And there are many alcoves that have traps with bells in it that lead this minotaur directly to that trap of where the party is. And coming up with that concept, coming up with that and drawing it out on the map, that did take a while to do. And then translating that into mm -hmm. a digital 
format. I have I haven't even started yet because I know it's going to take quite a bit of time. <laughs> so listeners, your patience. This is this is listeners, this is your moment to remind and ping Jackson when you listen to this show to have him take out his phone and take a picture of that map and post it in the Discord. Oh yeah, by the time this episode comes out, I will most likely have the digital map finished. So in the Discord, uh, when this set comes out, go ahead and ping me and I will show you the picture of the draft and the final product side by side. As well as a rough ballpark estimate of how long it took for me to make that. There you go. (laughs) Yeah, so for... And then one of the... When it comes to actually throwing down monsters mm-hmm. one of the coolest things is that makes it super super easy for me and super super convenient is that the pies the pathfinder second edition bestiaries are in a module in foundry as mm-hmm. well as both of the battle zoo bestiaries that the, the uh, battle zoo bestiary are the battle zoo Bestiary 1 and Battle Zoo Strange and Unusual, which I was a published published monster writer in. So uh, you can see my name in Battle Zoo Strange and Unusual. Just, you know, just throwing it out there. Anyway, both of those, all three of those are in Foundry. So, like, you can just grab monsters and throw them onto your map. And you can make them weak or elite if you want to scale them up or scale them down. Mm-hmm. And um, so encounter building is super oh, yeah, easy. Especially when you get the encounter and, building and calculators. The tool. Yeah. Yeah. And you can it's, do it on the fly with the elite and weak templates. Like if suddenly two of your players can't show or an extra player can show, just throw in a couple extra monsters or adjust a weak or elite. It's pretty easy to do on the fly without changing the feel of the encounter. Yeah, um, yeah or you could just th- yeah, you could throw a couple of uh, weak weak minions. goons in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you got an extra one, or or yeah, or downgrade one of the monsters to weak if you're missing a player. It's super easy, so it makes like encounter building in the VTTs like way easier. The, um, the harder thing is building on the fly NPCs. But, yeah. But Corey, actually, I'm mentioning Corey again. Corey's really helped me out with that. There's a couple of modules in there that I can I can link to in the show notes. I think they're called Jacks and PC Builders, <laughs> where she told she helped me out with that lets you make NPCs on the fly. Actually, it lets you make like leveled NPCs. So if you want like a level 10 paladin as an NPC, you can quickly whip one out. Like on the fly. I don't have all those modules turned on in every single one of my games, but yeah. So like if I'm, if I'm going to homebrew an adventure or, um, I'm running a third-party one-shot, and I need mm-hmm. to quick whip together. That doesn't have a Foundry module, and I need quick need to whip together a couple of NPCs that are in there. I use those 
modules or to quick create a couple of NPCs. So yeah, I gotta say my NPC prep work is usually pretty light. Um, like I think about them, I read about them, and then I play them on the fly, much like I do when I'm starting a new character. For instance, the mayor of Absalom or Absalom. Abomination Vaults, Atari, thank you. Who well, I had one idea, and then Jason said, oh, he's a follower of uh, Erastil. He's probably going to be like this. And he completely changed that entire personality and encounter you ran into Jason. was completely on the fly. Uh, he became a jerk who, you know, was a jerk to his family. Uh, a jerk by my standards. I'm sorry. Very overbearing and, you know male leader oriented uh so i i don't do much npc prep but i know jason you do a lot yeah more, right i do i uh i generally like to practice voices and i like to uh read ahead some other dialogue mm-hmm. for example i think yeah i think this episode will be out by the time the actual podcast episode airs so there is a there is an encounter. So I'm going to keep, but I'm still going to keep it vague. There is an encounter with an Orpok witch in the swamp that I immediately, immediately when I when I read about that NPC, I was like, okay, we are going full on Cajun swamp huffing, mm-hmm. you know, hermit here. So yeah. I gave it my all when it came to like that southern swamp hermit. I uh, loved voice. his voice. That was great. <laughs> yeah, like I, I, w- I did my best. Whatever I forget what that character is the the lightning bug in in. Uh, oh Princess yeah, I, th- mm. I forget his name too. Mm-hmm. I think it's like mm-hmm. Eddie or something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, why isn't Lunar on this? Uh, she would know. I feel like oh, Eddie yeah. might be the crocodile. Is it Eddie? I'm not sure. Let's see. Yeah, Princess and the Frog is, I believe, Lunar's favorite Disney princess movie. Ray. Ray is his name. Yeah. But yeah, so I, I immediately I knew that. And I kind of have some stable of voices for, based off of diff- different ancestries. For example, elves tend to be French. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I have not heard that take yet. Okay. Because in Pathfinder, elves are from Kionan. Um, that's that's their their nation, and Kionan is known for its wine, France fantasy wine, France, elven mm-hmm. wine, mm-hmm. elven wine. You know that's kind of where I went. Um, I can't do a Scottish accent to save my life. <laughs> I have tried and tried and tried. And I cannot do a Scottish accent at all. So I just given up and dwarves are just Southern. Oh, I was going to say, when I read Hobbit or Lord of the Rings to my kids, the dwarves are Scottish. I don't I, do accents for the show, but I do when I read stories to my kids. I can't so. do Scottish accents at all. <laughs> so yeah, dwarves are just Southern because it's the easiest. It's the one I know how to do because I've lived in Alabama for four or five years. Mm-hmm. I I can do it. Yeah, I picked up on it real easy. And dwarves are my favorite ancestry, so it's the easiest one for me to do. So I can, I'll just do it. Yeah, the halflings are always Minnesotan. 
Oh, don't you know, dear? <laughs> I have no I, idea. I why. love the Minnesota Norbox. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and, and since we didn't have since we didn't have any halflings in the party, I just decided, hey, she's a counselor. Okay, we're gonna do a Minnesota Norbox. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, <laughs> I love that Lunar picked it up for her um, for her bread lady. <laughs> I love that you picked it up. Oh, That's man. great. <laughs> but no, but the, the thing I like to do is I like to read ahead what the dialogue is. Because I don't know. Um, and you, you all can tell me, the listeners, or and you, you two are being two of my players. Mm-hmm. And it's not so much a pet peeve. But it's... So I'm not going to... Like, I don't get annoyed or anything when it happens. It doesn't annoy me. But it's something that... I try, I'm just trying not to do. I'm trying to blend it seamlessly. Mm-hmm. So to not make it obvious that I'm reading descriptors or flavor texts, unless I yeah. specifically point it out. Like, it I doesn't bother me at all. Like, I have no, it's not a pet peeve. It's, no, it's not an annoyance. I'm just trying to blend it, Yeah, you know? And not make it obvious yeah. that I'm reading flavor text. Like read through the flavor text yeah, and I paraphrase it. Yeah, so like I, I'll read the flavor text ahead of time. You know, I'll prep that ahead of time so I know that this is going to be the flavor text. I've read it before the session starts once or twice, and so when I get there, I try to try to make it natural. So it's like, oh, you know, Zabi, yeah, you're 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 climbing up. The, the palisades here. Oh, so he's, and and Corey's like, okay, so so what so what what do I see? I'm like, oh well, you know, okay, well, you're you're kind of just gazing around town, and you notice that you notice that, and then that's when I'll 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 actually start reading the flavor text, but I'll try to make it a natural progression. So you st- you notice that the the village. Of, Piers abandoned and it's almost like there hasn't been anybody here for like a couple weeks and like the the, the ones on the side are completely empty and ramshackle but that there's like two big ones in the middle those ones seem a little bit more sturdy and all that that I just read there was like flavor it was like was straight up flavor text from the box but I try to change my speech and make it appear natural Mm-hmm. I'd say you're pretty successful. I would at too. That. Sometimes um, there's no way around it, but yeah, yeah. Sometimes the language is just such that it's like, shit. Okay, I don't talk like that, mm-hmm. but you guys need to hear that. You specifically right. need to hear this language. Yeah. All right, this is straight up flavor text. Like, and sometimes I'll just be like, okay, just yeah, real quick. Let me read. Let me reread you the flavor text for this room. Mm-hmm. And I'll just make it obvious. Or uh, recall knowledge is one where it it happens a lot. Where it's like if we're doing a recall knowledge check on a zombie, then it is obvious that you are reading the flavor text of a zombie. But at the same time, like that is kind of what we just asked of you. So, <laughs> well, I would say it's it's actually pretty important with recall knowledge to always present the information in whichever way you choose because. If normally you read the text word for word, and now you have to lie, it becomes pretty obvious 
base, not you, Jason, people in general, it will become obvious if suddenly there are pauses or ums or things said at a different cadence than you normally do. So I would say, especially for recall knowledge, you should probably choose ahead of time. Am I going to read it? Because if I am, I should have my lies prepared. Uh, I tend to go the other way and just kind of say everything sarcastically <laughs> and bullshitty, uh, so that then when I am lying, it sounds like I'm always talking. Um, <laughs> Gotta keep but... them on their toes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, uh, so if you're and if you're newer to Pathfinder Second Edition, the reason why you would lie on a recall knowledge check is that mm-hmm. if a player cr- is trying to recall knowledge on a creature and they critically fail, it's a secret check, and they don't know the result. Mm-hmm. And if you critic, if they critically fail, the GM can choose to present them false information. And I've done this before on the show. <laughs> yeah. It's my favorite. It's my favorite part of the game when the GM gets to lie. I've done this so on the show, was... and I don't think Lunar has has let it let it like she hasn't let me live it down. <laughs> Sil like, is still walking around with a potion they think is a potion of invisibility. Yeah, it's a potion of yeah. water breathing. No, no, no. The one Sil has is a potion of of uh, leaping. That's right. That you told me was invisibility, and I wrote in my notes so that I remember that I think it's invisibility. Um, That's right. Because I accidentally didn't roll it blind, but I wanted to be lied to. (laughs) Lie to me, please. (laughs) (laughs) It's my only request, really. Please. (laughs) But yeah, uh, Jackson, what do you do for NPC prep work? (laughs) It's probably a lot more with political intrigue, right? You'd be surprised. God forbid if a player asks me what a character's name is. I am the worst with character names. Generally when I think about a character or like or like their role in the story, like uh I'll go ahead and refer to my Sun Sun Empire campaign. I have a captain of the guard that was at the starting town where the party came from named Captain John Shadowbane. When I wrote his character, the only thing I had identifying him, or the first thing that I wrote down about him, was that he was the guard captain, and that he was a high-ranking military member in that military, had jurisdiction over this area, and then a general vibe of, like, he's kind of strict, he's very no-nonsense, doesn't really like jokes to be played mm-hmm. a lot around him, but if you do prove yourself, he will respect you and will openly show that kind of respect. But I never write down the name, so. <laughs> yep. Half my NPCs are named Bob. Yeah. So. It's my default. Whenever I was. Whenever I am weaving that web of intrigue, I don't. Uh, the very first thing I just think of with each character in that web is what their specific role is for that mm. overall plot. Mm-hmm. It's funny you mentioned that your character's name is Bob because yeah. um, Wizards of the Coast published their their data mining from D&D Beyond. Mm-hmm. 
can and do you know what the most popular well they call them they now call them species so but not they used to be race oh the most okay. popular species in D&D Beyond is a uh, human fighter named Bob yeah the yeah. most popular character <laughs> is a human fighter named Bob cool yep yeah <laughs> I'm assuming that Bob came from like my generation is that's the thing we all defaulted to I don't think it's original to me but I yeah s- so that's I scream because it pains me that's side <laughs> You don't want the, human uh, fighters named Bob? The average level is like 4.7 something. That doesn't surprise hmm. me. A lot of campaigns die at level 5. <laughs> yeah. 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 Bob is the most popular name. It's because it's so easy. The, the most... The most um, Bob or Jim Bob? The most uh, played class as a fighter and the most played species. See, now, I... I... I wonder if the human surprises me a little bit. Yeah, I feel like you play a fantasy world. You want to be a not human. Um, Self inserts. I know nothing. I, I know. I and I, I know. I don't know as much about fifth edition as I d- did about three point five. But um, in three point five, humans started with two feats, which was too hard to pass up. Yeah. That's true. In five e. A variant human starts off with one general fee, and no other, no other ancestry gets that. See, I yeah. am curious Which though. Is with really, tough I am curious up. with the fighter though. Did they happen to say what the most popular subclass for fighter was? If it's a champion, I'm gonna go cry on my bed for a little bit. <laughs> it's the like most champions? uninteresting fighter subclass <gasps> it, well, okay you get level 3 and all that happens is you get a 19 on the die is also a critical hit cool <laughs> <laughs> no spell casting no battle maneuvers nothing you just get a 19 it's a 1 in 10 now <laughs> keen you get keen on everything it, it annoys me way more than it should <laughs> I'm just imagining that's someone's favorite class for them. Hey, I don't want to yuck their yum. If they enjoy it, absolutely go for it. I prefer a lot more complexity. No, I... <laughs> Bob I like the first. Spellcasters. I like Bob. crazy combinations. I like making my own brain hurt from the amount of bullshit that I'm trying to pull off at once. <laughs> yeah. Which is why you play a fire. Yeah. <laughs> A fire war priest. Let's, let's be specific. A fire war priest. Vesuviac's been the most fun I've had playing a character in a while. <laughs> nice. Yeah, a fire war priest. That's right. All right. Anything else for GM prep that we that you guys do that we have forgot fun with it that we didn't talk Just about? Have fun. It's a game. Don't take yeah. it too seriously. It's an excuse to be able to hang out with friends and spend time with people you enjoy, all sharing interests with a hobby that you that you all wish to experience together. Don't take it too seriously. If it's stressing you out too much, if you're not having fun with it, if you're having difficulty staying engaged in the game and being able to plan for your games the way that you want to, 
it is okay to take a step back or to scope back what you're trying to think of. And it is also okay to share these feelings with your players if you do run into that type of a situation. This game is difficult to run, both Pathfinder 2nd Edition and 5th Edition for D&D. And that's not, that's just counting two of the multitude of mm -hmm. tabletop role-playing games that exist on the market. It's okay to feel overwhelmed. It's okay to need to step back, readjust your approach, and then go back at it with a fresh mind. Don't feel like you're, you're bad if you're having trouble with the prep. But if you do want to take the time to prep and really make something that is special for your players at the table and, the, and craft a very amazing story for everybody to enjoy, go for it. Preparation is your friend in that situation. And if you need help and you're stuck and you have GM's block or writer's, our version of writer's block, dude, hit us up in the Discord. Yeah, we've got loads of GM's in there. There's, there's a ton of GM's in our oh, Discord. Yeah. And I guarantee you, there's, you're, you're Somebody's going to have a solution to, that'll help you break down your GM's block. You know, it's... Yeah, there's... like, I, there's, I bet you there's probably more GM's in there than... <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think... Just don't fret it. Don't fret it. I Honestly, I'm go and I'm going to be straight up, and I'm going to be honest with you, I've run games that I've done zero prep. Hell yeah. <laughs> What's... I've done zero prep games where it's just like, oh shit, I forgot to read book one and I'm running the game tonight. Okay. Yeah. Oh, anytime <laughs> I run Lost Minds All of right. Elver, let's do I don't it. prep. I already know that story. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Okay. And I'm like, all right, let's go. I got this. Especially because no matter how much prep you do, your players are going to do the one thing you didn't prep for, and that's okay. Just bullshit it. Yes. They won't even notice. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Alright, well with that, I believe that uh, is going to be the end. Jason, Rachel, do you have any final thoughts you want to share before we close this out? No, no. I mean, if you're listening to this, you, 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 um, you already know that we have a Discord, we have a Patreon. Our Patreon's uh, recently changed, so um, if you're supporting us at the one dollar or two dollar level, you you'll have to go in there and resupport us at the new one dollar level. And even though it says like one dollar or five dollar. Those are just defaults. You can they're they're technically pay what you want, so they're it's not limit locked. You can just it'll default to those dollar limits, and you can always add more, however much more you want. So we have two levels: the one dollar and up, and five dollars and up. They're both pay what you want. Uh, one dollar and up will give you a access to submit hero points which we do every five episodes, which I think the next episode we record is a episode. And then the $5 and up will give you early access to every single one of our shows. 
So you'll get access to this one about two to three weeks early and everything the, the actual actual plate you get it three days early and the dubious knowledge is that one's a little bit more loosey-goosey it depends on actual scheduling that's another great show to listen to for prep work i've listened to that because i don't know the gods in the world very well so tying back in gives you some good insight on the gods in a more fun way than reading extensive wiki pages yeah yeah you get to hear Corey and myself and occasionally mike and a special guest every episode just bullshit about gods mm-hmm. but yeah again they're both pay what you want they default to the to the one and five dollar level but they're both they're not limit locks so you can pay what you want and I think that's about it, Jackson. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, if you enjoyed the if you enjoyed the podcast, then absolutely please share it with your friends. Share it around. Uh, podcasts grow best through word of mouth, and so if you have someone that you think might enjoy the mutiny or may enjoy Twenty Five North podcast, please share it with them and let them know. As Jason said, we do have that Patreon, so if you are able to any any contribution towards that patreon is going to be greatly appreciated and we will see you all next time Yay.